Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to the third part of the Changes Mother Mother miniseries with me, Annie McManus. So, excuse any strange noises in the background. I live very close to a school. I have the window open. It is a scorching hot day and it's break time. So if you hear any blood curdling screams, it's just the children having fun. Um, Hope you're doing good. Hope you're enjoying the mini series so far. So far, we've spoken to Francisco Garcia about missing people and Sophie Haywood about single motherhood, two themes central to my novel, Mother Mother. This week, it's all about grief. For Nikesh Shukla, it took 10 years from his mother dying for him to be able to make sense of his grief. It was only when his daughters were born and he began to write a book to them and for them that he noticed his grief for his mother creeping back to the forefront of his mind. The book he wrote is called Brown Baby. I found it so, so touching. I was crying for a good bit of it. It's just so gorgeous and remarkable for its vulnerability. It's a memoir about the dual experience of becoming a parent and reckoning with the loss of his own mum. It's full of these moments of sadness, rage, just utter desperation, the whole gamut of emotions that will be so familiar to people who have lost someone irreplaceable. But it's also, and kind of fundamentally, a book about finding joy in the world, even when that seems like the hardest thing to do. That's really the message Nikesh was trying to get through to his daughters, that even when the world seems like a very cruel place, which let's face it, it does a lot of the time, there are still things to wonder at, things to relish and drink in and be happy for. Myself and Nikesh spoke just a week before my own book came out, so Nikesh was really reassuring about me being my anxious first-time novelist. This is not his first rodeo. He's written his own novels, both for adults and children, and has compiled the award-winning essay collection, The Good Immigrant. He just got offered an MBE and turned it down, actually. He wrote an article in The Guardian about that. It's an interesting read. So yeah, we talked a lot about what it's like to be an author, what it's like to put a book out into the world, uh, but we started as Brown Baby itself does with Nikesh's daughters. He just had a particularly sleepless night with his youngest and he was feeling the effects of that quite heavily. Enter the podcast, Nikesh Shukla. Yeah, it's horrible. It's like, um, it feels like, you know, there's that sort of American style torture that they used to have, or they apparently have where they'd play heavy metal really loudly to people to every time they were starting to fall asleep it sort of feels like that you kind of you smash asleep and then you're wrenched awake and it's horrible it's just it makes me feel physically sick so this morning I feel like I feel like what it was like to have a newborn how old are your girls now I've got a six-year-old and a four-year-old okay yeah I'm eight and four eight and four so similar-ish Okay, well, listen, we can talk about parenting a lot, and I'm sure we will, but let's let's talk about the book in question. And, you know, obviously, 
there is kind of running themes throughout both of our books that are kind of paralleled in my book. There's so, so much about absent mothers in a very kind of visceral sense in terms of, of Mary going missing. And then also in, in a kind of quieter sense in that we learn about what it's like to grow up without a mother from a very young age. But what changes in your life, Nikesh, led you to write this book? I, I didn't really ever imagine myself having kids. I didn't really think it was just wasn't a consideration. It wasn't something I was actively opposed to or actively wanted to do. It was just something that I thought that's something that other people are doing. But then having a kid, it changed so much for me. It, it really kind of crystallised for me what what my life was about, what my life's work was about. Because around the same time that I was a young father, I just started doing youth work again. And so I think like the first big change for me was going back into youth work because it really crystallised for me how important it is to support young people when they're coming through, especially when they don't have any voice, they don't have any access to opportunities, they don't have... They don't have anyone to support them to kind of make mistakes and then help them learn from those mistakes, especially now when like we have such free and easy access to create content on platforms like Instagram and TikTok. You know, young people don't necessarily have the opportunity to learn their craft and practice their craft in a supported environment. And so going back into youth work and working on this youth magazine that I used, used to really helped me to think about what I wanted my work to stand for, what I wanted my writing to stand for. Mm. And then you had babies. And then I had babies, yeah, pretty much around the same time that that happened. I think the week I found out that I was taking this job was the week we knew my wife was pregnant. And it was the also the week that I was in Karachi at a literature festival being driven around in like armoured armored like jeeps and stuff. It was very, very strange. But also like it was just like everything all at once kind of thing. Yeah. And what I guess it's good to get kind of an overview of the amount of time it took for you to write this book and your daughter's kind of growth in that time. So can you talk me through the kind of chronology of, of how long and, and where she was in age during it? During the writing of Brown Baby. So in early 2018, I was briefly a columnist for The Observer magazine. And um, so this is this is a, a long story, but this is a podcast. That's what men on podcasts... We love, we love, we love the long <laughs> conversations. Yeah, men, men on podcasts always have 20 minute long stories. That's our birthright. So in 2016, uh, I put out a book called The Good Immigrant, which was a collection of essays about race and immigration yeah. in the UK, featuring essays by people like Riz Ahmed and uh, Bim Adewumni and Rennie Edo Lodge and loads of amazing people. And I went from being a comedy writer and youth worker to being like person that people would call upon to talk about race for a living and I just spent like a year and a half to two years while my kid was really young just touring the country touring the world talking about like race issues in the UK especially post-Brexit and I found it really hard and I just found it like incredibly traumatic to be constantly be talking about all of this stuff and so when I was asked if I wanted to become a columnist for The Observer, and it was based on an article that I'd written about my daughter not wanting to play with a doll because it was brown and she thought the brown was dirty. And I'd written this article for The Pool and the editor of The Observer magazine had seen that and thought, well, maybe there's more stuff like this. You know, it's an interesting perspective, a father writing about, you know. And so she asked me what I wanted the column to be. And I was just so, I felt so bleak about the world and so sad and so angry. And I said, I want it to be about joy. I want to write about joy. And she said, that's great, but 
you know, tell me more about it. And the more more I talked about it, the more I realised that the column had this sort of central question. How do we raise our kids to be joyful in a world that feels so bleak, that I feel so sad and angry about? And that became those columns. And so through those columns, I talked about, you know, like the day-to-day pain of having young children and sleep deprivation. I talked about racism. I talked about my grief for my mother's death. I talked about all of these things. I was sort of building up these really sort of interesting, quite disparate columns. And when the column ended, an editor approached me and said, is there a book in this? And I was like, what do you mean? She said, do you want to write a memoir about being a parent? I was like, not really. I'm 38, dude. Like, who writes a memoir at 38? And also, like, my parenting journey wasn't particularly interesting. Like, nothing dramatic had happened. Everything had happened as it should have happened. There was no, like, big story there. It was literally just, like, in those sort of short, bite-sized columns, like, being a parent made me reevaluate how I saw the world. But, you know, this editor's brilliant and she's, she was also persistent and she asked me a couple of times and I was a bit like, you know what, I'm a big fan of that sort of epistolary tradition of writers like ta Coates and James Baldwin and, you know, ta Coates. So writing letters, yeah. like kind of writing in letter form. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah, and Ali Wong had just written this book called Dear Girls, which was her these hilarious letters she wrote to her daughters about her relationship with their dad. And... Yeah. You know, Between the World and Me by Tanaka Hussey Coates had actually been a huge source of inspiration for The Good Immigrant. And I thought, well, maybe I could just do that. Maybe I could write a letter to my daughters. And that would then force me to go, right, it doesn't need to be a traditional linear memoir because like, it wouldn't be that interesting. But it would, it would then allow me to talk about the stuff that kind of keeps me up at night, the stuff that fills me with such fear that literally I, keeps you up at night and figuratively yeah. yeah and addressing it to my daughters would mean that I wouldn't be able to lie to them I'd have to tell them the truth because you know I can't lie yeah. to them and so the book emerged out of that and out of knowing that I was going to write the book I realized that in order to write about being a parent I needed to write about being a child and in order to write about being a child I needed to finally a decade on deal with my mum's death And so, you know, it's part grief memoir, but it's also part memoir about raising our children to be joyful. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well done. Well done. I got got through it. (laughs) You did. You really did. You really did. I guess that's such a huge seismic thing to take on in terms of like deep diving into your feelings, really rummaging around in there and trying to articulate what's going on in your head, but also exposing those feelings to the world. Did you have any, oh God, like doubts as you were writing to go like, fuck, this is too much. Or like, I I don't think I'm ready mentally to write something like this. Yeah, there are a couple of things I took out because they felt like they were just confessional stuff and I hadn't really processed them yet. What's been really, really interesting, because this is a book that is also talking about what it is to be a man, what it is to be a brown man now and sort of re-evaluating the capacity for vulnerability that men should allow themselves to feel and and also re-evaluating the need for men to feel uncomfortable when they get stuff wrong and that be okay and we can you know it's okay to feel uncomfortable and move past stuff and like I talk about a couple of incidents where like you know one specific thing where like I witness a thing 
happening to my daughters where people use some really kind of sexually aggressive language and I text my friend to my friends I'm like oh my god I I know you guys always talk about all this stuff and I, I'm always with you and stuff but I've just seen this thing and they were like yeah well done for um well done for having daughters in order to understand how <laughs> how awful the world and <laughs> yeah and I included yeah. that because I was just like I felt really uncomfortable that they called me out on it even though they did it lovingly because they're, they're yeah, my close friends, yeah. but I'm okay. I'm fine. I'm here. I'm still here. And mm. it's what you kind of do next that counts. And, you know, there was a degree to which like writing all this stuff, honestly, sort of gave me this capacity to kind of address these things around, you know, masculinity, around grief, around mental health and all this stuff. Like the thing that I didn't really think about too much in terms of the reaction to it, and I wish I had because it has been quite difficult to talk about, is I write very honestly about my relationship with food, about how I used food as a way of helping me grieve for my mum. But I also, after The Good Immigrant came out and I was sort of touring a lot and tired from touring and tired from having a young child, I just developed this incredibly difficult relationship with food in a way that just it didn't make me personally happy and you know turns out not many men have written about their relationship with food and so like I remember the first interview I did for this book and someone said so how does it feel to tell the world that you have an eating disorder and I was like whoa that is language that someone has put on this thing that I had not really considered um, yeah, or or try to process or anything like that. It's that labelling, isn't it? Yeah, and I I hadn't given it that labelling. I I found all of that stuff really weird. But I think there's a degree to which when you write a memoir, and also when when you write fiction, and you know this, like when you write fiction that comes from a really really personal place, you put your heart on the page, but you also retain enough for yourself that you're not giving people everything, and readers do tend to feel a certain amount of entitlement to what's not on the page which is quite an interesting relationship that you can sometimes have with your reader but at the same time you know I've put my emotional truth on the page but I haven't given my readers absolutely everything. I'm interested in what you're saying about holding something back and the necessity to do that in order to kind of feel like ownership of of yourself and your your own story. How did you know how much to hold back? And was there a point where you were like, did you have to monitor that? Did you have to be like, oh, I mean, I guess you did. You said you had to bring stuff back and take stuff out. Yeah, I think there's this, what I usually say in creative writing courses is like the first draft is always for yourself and every draft after that is about giving it to the reader. Fascinating. That's so, because we interviewed Sophie Haywood for this and her book is also a memoir. And she said that her first draft was, she wrote it all out and then she realised, that's just for me. I now need to write an entirely different version of this for the reader. I mean, you, you're probably feeling this at, at the moment. There's, there's, I really recommend listening to the Warren Zevon song, uh, Keep Me In Your Heart For A While, because uh, there's like this, this thing that happens, uh, and I guess I'm just used to it now because I've been published a bunch of times, but... I didn't understand this when my first novel came out, but mostly because my first novel is so wrapped up with the death of my mum because they both happened in the same seven-day period. But when a book comes out, it doesn't belong to me anymore. And so what tends to happen is, instead of a feeling of elation that it's out, I always feel a little bit of grief because it just doesn't belong to me anymore. And because it doesn't belong to me anymore, it belongs to readers. And, and what happens is readers then 
project onto your book everything that they're going to project you know countless times readers will read things into into your words that you haven't necessarily knowingly done or feels like their experience and not yours or they'll go why didn't you write about this and you'll go well that's not the story that I wanted and and I found that one of the ways of, of, of protecting myself in the, that instance is to just go it doesn't belong to me it belongs to readers and the moment a reader engages with your work it kind of remixes it a little bit it becomes what they think of it and you know to to quote Jay-Z by that point I'm on to the next one on to the next one on to the next one because I just feel like I want to retain the bit of my heart that sort of compels me to tell stories and the, the way to do that is to kind of ensure that as soon as something comes out I'm working on something new yeah forward motion I get that I felt a need to do that myself we were talking now the week before Mother Mother comes out and I'm starting to feel quite overwhelmed by just the whole experience really but what I'm finding is very helpful is just writing other stuff and feeling like the, the kind of escapism of that and the kind of just the idea that I can be constructive in some way and, and control that the main thing to, to know is you've done a brilliant job it's a brilliant novel and it's so beautiful and so brittle and so painful in moments and I, I think that the way you do that is, is really masterful and the thing is even now the very nature of me saying this to you as we record a podcast a week before it comes out you're probably going I don't remember that bit it's like but that's because it kind of sort of mother mother kind of belongs to me and all the other readers now and that's sort of like this weird thing that happens that no one really prepares you for and so you do go through this sort of period of mourning for the original thing that made you go I've got a story to tell yeah 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 so many feelings I'm just trying to process them all and what I'm trying to do is feel just keep going back to the feeling of how amazing it felt to write it and just focus on that and the writing of it and everything else is wonderful or not wonderful but at least I know that it sounds so cheesy but like I've kind of opened a door in my head of 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 wanting to write and I'm just like mad for it basically (laughs) when you make decisions for your company you look for the no-brainers If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Anyway, back to you, Nikesh. I wanted to ask you, you know, did writing Brown Baby change you? Now you have hindsight on it. Yes, it did. It really fundamentally changed me in two ways. The first is, so as as I mentioned, my mum died the week my first novel came out. It was very sudden and it was a real shock and I was just very broken by it. And I didn't know what to do. And so I... I decided to just promote my novel because that felt easy and doable and it involved cocktails with writers and like like sharing gossip and like getting drunk and like being being a bit silly and all the rest of it and that was a good enough distraction. But then as that went on you just I just pushed it down and down and down and down and then 
when my first child was born, suddenly I felt that absence and I realised that I hadn't dealt with my mum dying and it all just kind of erupted for me. And I, I was sort of, I didn't know how where to put all of those feelings. I didn't know, I, well, I didn't accept at the time that I needed therapy and I certainly didn't know how to kind of contain all this, you know, like the snake in the the comedy jar like it goes everywhere it doesn't just sort of splurt upwards it just it like explodes and so when I was writing the book I realized that in order to write about my mum I needed to grieve for her properly and in order to grieve for her properly I needed to conjure her and I needed for her to live again on the page and I needed for her to die and I needed to feel the pain of how she died and I needed to feel the pain of those final conversations and I needed to feel viscerally that she had died and it was incredibly painful to write because this was like the goodbye I didn't feel like I'd had an opportunity to to share and it put me in a really dark vulnerable place you know turns out like saving all the really dark shit you want to put in your book isn't conducive to going away to Berlin for a couple of days with a bottle of whiskey and uh, and a laptop and, you know, teaching during the day. But that's where I was. And it just put me in a really dark place. And then I handed it in and I edited it. And it was ready to come. It was done in February 2020, and it was supposed to come out in September 2020. And I was feeling really raw about everything. And then when the pandemic started and my publisher said, should we push this back a little bit? It gave me just a bit more time with the book, a bit more time before I gave it to readers. I just like got to sit with it a bit longer. And that final edit I did where like, you know, the big stack of like the typeset pages arrive in a big bundle and you go through it one more time with your with your fine line pen that was a time I I felt some closure about my mum's death I'm not saying like it's all like flowers and meadows and Barry Manilow songs now but it I definitely felt a peace I felt a calm I felt like I'd worked through the thing I should have worked through earlier on and it it was a stark reminder that grief isn't linear and grief it doesn't happen neatly in a bundle in real time and sometimes it does take 10 years and that's okay and sometimes you need to force the grief out through something like a construct like art like like writing and also it's not necessarily the same look just because I wrote it down and I felt a catharsis in that release it's not the same as therapy is a, is an important lesson but I did feel a sense of calm when I sent those pages back to my publisher in September of last year. Yeah. And your mum is all the way through the book. And it, it's interesting how, you know, everything you write about when you're talking to your daughter, you just keep coming back to your mum and your thoughts of her and your memories of her. And it's so interesting, this kind of, you're kind of caught between grief and wonder all the way through the book. It's this kind of flip-flopping between sadness and awe. But I was, I was interested in like, you know, the idea of grief. Did writing about grief, as you say, it doesn't make everything okay, but does it change your experiences of grief? Yeah, for me it did, because it in those early drafts, I got to put everything on the page and I got to release everything, everything that I'd ever held on to, every, 
every moment where I, you know my grief is hampered by a remembrance of the fact that my mum could be quite annoying most of the time <laughs> or like you know like and, and that's the thing about you know conjuring a person you don't you know in grief in memoriam we tend to romanticize like the great things about the person who who's no longer with us and we roll our eyes at the things that weren't as good but we forget the really mundane things we forget the day-to-day of them we forget the routine of them we forget things like the way they smell I you know and I even forgot the way that she my sister and me would lie on the sofa like sort of intertwined and watch ER than friends like on Thursdays or Fridays or whenever it was without fail and that for me was like the safest I ever felt in my life and like did it way into my like teens uh to a point where like I'd be horrified to admit it at school but like that's just that was safety for me and um getting to like re-experience all of that stuff was really really important because it gives you a sense of who that person was and the weight of that person and the, like the physical presence that they played in your life and what that absence now means. And like, I think there's an argument to be made that like, you know, having kids can sometimes, you know, it doesn't replace that absence, but it kind of like, it stretches the gap between that absence and where you are, I think. Hmm. I mean, that's another thing that comes up in the book is um, obviously your child and, and your mum are, are connected, but you call her Ganga after the river that your mother's ashes were spread in. And producer Frank, um, we both read the book at the same time and he made this point, which I thought was so good, is that it, at times you feel like a medium between your mother and your daughter. It's like you are trying to communicate how your mother would feel and say and behave to her. And sometimes you, you can't find the answers and you're just really need, you just need her. But it's it's really interesting that you've become this person in the middle of them. Do you feel like you've succeeded in making your mum a part of your daughter's lives? You know, oh, that's a very interesting reaction because I think, I think for me, the, the way I was thinking about it was like, my daughter was the bridge between me and my mum because she represented like... She represents like, you know, if the, if the Ganges River um, is like the sort of the portal between the living and the, the you know, the, and those who have passed, then she sort of represents that connection between us. Because so much of like my yearning for my mum was often this kind of, oh God, like, I don't have any answers. If only I had my mum, like, cause my dad, I'm not going to go to my dad for advice on, on parenting. He was a very absent parent as I, as I discuss in the book. And, you know, part of the book is me kind of reconciling that with who he is as a person and being okay with that. But, you know, my mum had equipped me for all of this stuff. I just need, and, you know, so like there was this sort of quite naturalistic way that I thought about myself as a dad because it, my mum had sort of prepared me for all this stuff. And like, I think, you know, spiritually like my mum lives through like the way we are you know and um how she raised me and and I guess all of the stuff that I know about her as a person because like part of part of the kind of the journey of the book and a lot of this I didn't end up putting in the book because I felt like it wasn't my story to tell was I got really fascinated by the idea of who my mum was when she wasn't my mum because it's so like you know I'm obviously like I don't mean to sort of state an obvious thing to someone who who is a who is a mother but like that sort of loss of identity that kind of happens particularly for mums and she was just my mum and I really wanted to know like who was the guy 
whose name she wrote all over her exercise books and like did she have posters on her walls and like if she had a burn book when she was 13 years old who would be in a burn book and why like all those kind of things that you want to know that kind of give you a sense of a person and a really beautiful thing happened like at the start of lockdown my mum's best friend just sent me a random like whatsapp forward in the way that Indian aunties do and I just replied I was just I think I was just feeling quite delicate that day and I just replied and said would you feel comfortable telling me about what my mum was like when she was a teenager? And she just, over the course of the day, just started sending me all these voice notes about my mum. And, like, I learned all this incredible stuff that I just hadn't known. Like, my mum's best friend and my mum and a bunch of their friends took the Bradford Telegraph in August to task in the 60s because every time they reported on a crime by a non-white person, they always specified their race and they felt like it was gaslighting and they, they petitioned for them to stop and they eventually did. And like, this was all stuff that my mum was doing when she was a teenager that I never knew anything about. But then like drawing a line between that and like what I was doing like four or five years ago with stuff like the Good Immigrant, I was like, wow, like all of this stuff was just in me, you know? Let's keep going and talk about, you know, you mentioned that that kind of period of being a spokesperson for, you know, being wheeled out on various shows and having to kind of speak on behalf of, um, (laughs) you know, everyone marginalised in the UK. No biggie, no pressure, (laughs) put it all on you. That must have been really tough. But you are someone who, you know, is well known whenever you do any research on you, Nikesh, that that you are one of these people who who where community is really important. And, you, you know, you like to pay it forward. You like to kind of give back everything you've learned and teach and guide and encourage like the new generations of writers. Why is that important to you? Oh, thank you. I think a bunch of things. I think it was just the way I was raised by my mum to always think about community and that's always been in me I am also like you know I went to private school for a bit and it was always it was a real sort of source of struggle for my parents they really wanted me to go to this school and I went and the thing that I took away from it was like the privilege that I had in terms of like networks and support and like indulgence of things that wouldn't necessarily had the support structure for in like the comprehensive schools or the state schools near where I grew up, like the arts and stuff. I felt like I've, I've had a degree of privilege here and it's incumbent on me to, to share it. Like it's important that I share it. Mm. Can I ask, I mean, I interviewed Candice Carty-Williams for this podcast and we were talking about her history working and publishing and, being the only um, black woman in the room, the only black person in the room, so much in her situation. And then having that kind of just like, oh, well, you could be the diversity gal. Like you can be the one that because like, you know, everything you're like you're part of a community. So maybe you could like set something up, which she did. But obviously there's a question of why, why should it be always on the person of color? Why should it be the brown person, the black person doing that? Did you ever feel that? Like, for, I mean, from inside the industry, I mean, obviously from outside, you have all your contacts and you have a community, but from inside, I can, you know, I know you set up a, a prize for writers. Like wh- what was the kind of context behind that? Yeah, like, look, it's always incumbent on the people. This is the thing about, like, trying to 
fix an imbalance in an industry, it's always incumbent on the people who feel the imbalance viscerally rather than the people who... Yeah, there's an easy, lazy thing where you go, well, like, you know, we don't really know what we're doing. Yeah. So maybe, you know, and, you and could... And I don't want to step on your lived experience. So I would just signal boost you. And it's like, well, you know, white yeah. people are the ones who are going to end racism. <laughs> uh, <Yeah>. <laughs> ultimately. <laughs> um, but here's a really interesting story about the prize that I set up and the prize that Candy set up because yeah. they were set up in the same year. So I got so sick of like constantly being the sort of the misery doom monger of diversity, like talking about the lack of diversity. And I just felt like there are actually writers with books coming out and they must just feel so miserable that anytime anyone talks about non-white writers it, they just talk about the lack of when these people are already there and so I was talking about this with another writer called Sunny Singh and an organization called Media Diversified and we were like well, why don't we do something celebratory for a change rather than everything always just being miserable why don't we set up a prize and we can celebrate instead of just like constantly being miserable about stuff and I'm about to tell you an interesting story about how power works in the UK. <laughs> Strap in, guys. <laughs> uh, so on the night we were going to award our first ever award, which went to uh, Jacob Ross for the Bone Readers, I was admining the prize. And this is a like, thing I was doing all of it for free. like All of the reading, all of the time, all of the admin... God, yeah so lot. like this room was like filled with books and I would I was like going to the post office and pay my own money to like send them out to like judges and and stuff like that and um on the night that 6 30 the prize was announced at 7 30 at 6 30 we I received an email from the lawyers for the Equalities and Human Rights Commission saying that an MP had brought this prize to their attention uh, and said that it discriminated against white writers and we may be uh discriminatory and therefore the prize may be illegal and so they need to conduct a full investigation and I tell you what all the melanin dropped from my face like I was I was like oh, oh my god my, what do we do like and I called Sunny over and this is where Sunny is just like she's so amazing she was just like let's just let's just open that email tomorrow let's just we set this up to celebrate let's celebrate tonight but like it's at that point it's so interesting because at that point right you know, if you if you were in a position of power and money, you would be able to call a hotshot lawyer oh, and be like, "What's the deal here?" Oh, you know what I mean. Wait, wait till you hear how this story plays out, my friend. It gets really go, go. fucked up because right. so over the weekend, she and I are like, what do we do? Uh, we speak to a lawyer that follows us both on Twitter and she's like, I'll take this on pro bono. I'll sort this out for you. No probs. And so what we had to do is we had to provide loads of evidence to the Equalities and Human Rights Commission of our need to exist, that there was an imbalance in publishing and all this stuff. And it just felt like, you know, there's that Toni Morrison quote, the function, the very function of racism is to distract you, to keep you from doing the work yep. that you're doing. There's always one more thing and one more thing and one more thing. And it just mm -hmm. felt like, We'd built up this steam with this prize, like people were excited about it. It was year one and the Equalities and Human Rights Commission came came along and said, can you just remind us why you exist again? So then we have to spend the time gathering all of the information to, you know, and we were like, look, all of this stuff is freely available. But we gathered it because like we were scared. I was so like, we were so intimidated. The lawyers for the Equalities and Human Rights Commission say that what we're doing is discriminatory. And we sent all of this stuff. And then like I spent a summer waiting for them to kind of tell us whether what we were doing was illegal or not. And I like, I didn't know what the consequences were and I was terrified and, you know, we had this new baby and, and then our lawyer gets an email from them that basically is like two lines saying we've concluded our investigation. Uh, what you're doing is legal. You may continue. Oh 
my God. Um, hold on. Can hold, you fucking sue them? Hold on. For mental stress? This is only halfway through the story. Because <laughs> <laughs> it gets weirder. So like, we were like, is that it? <laughs> is that it? And um, so our lawyer, this was a shout out to Kieran, Kieran Dorker, who who handled this because she was such a badass. She had done a freedom of information request to find out, see the correspondence that the MP had sent. And also she and we were like, look, Equalities and Human Rights Commission is a statutory body regulated by the government to de- determine discrimination issues in this country. You should know that there is an imbalance in publishing. It's been very widely publicised all over the press. So why were you on the back foot with this? So we called a meeting with them. So just before the meeting, we saw their um, correspondence with Philip Davis MP. I'm, I'm okay to say this because like it's all been in the press and stuff because we talked about it. And he had written to them in pencil, <laughs> scrawly handwriting pencil of uh, the privileged dickhead man. Uh, sue me, <laughs> Phil, sue me. And uh, he had named yeah. us and he had named the Guardian and Fourth Estate B4M Prize as discriminatory against white writers. And so... When we spoke to the Equalities and Human Rights Commission, we were like, oh, I was like, this was a really horrible experience for us. And they were like, what do you mean? We were just looking for information. And we said, have you ever received a a letter from the lawyers of a government body telling you that the work you're doing is discriminatory? And they were like, no. And we were like, would you find that intimidating? And they said, yeah, I suppose. And then we talked about it and they, we got them up to speed with what was going on in publishing. But then just before we finished... One of us asked, I can't remember who it was, one of us was like, so um, how did the Guardian and uh, HarperCollins react when you sent them the same letter because they were named in the correspondence? Yeah, in the original pencil. And they yeah. said, oh, we didn't send them a letter. And in that moment, I understood how power works in this country because Sonny and I and Media Diversified, like Sonny and I, we're just like two random writers trying to do something nice for the community. Media Diversified was a grassroots, uh, amazing media organisation that sort of was funded by readers. And we're the little dogs compared to The Guardian and and HarperCollins, who probably have like a, a legal team on staff to deal with all this stuff. And so like they'd gone after us to see if we'd fold. And then if there was a case with us, they'd go after the people who could have shut them down with a proper legal team and I was just like that's how power works see if the little guy will fold and then go after the big people but I'm just so shocked that in this day and age someone who is in a position of power and is supposed to know how the world works could actually think in the way that he thought that he could actually think that was discriminatory that that scares the fucking bejesus out of me to be honest I mean, he is a conservative MP who doesn't believe in positive discrimination, but it taught me a lot about how power works and what happens when people club together and try and build a community to kind of address an imbalance that power structures want to keep in place. Nikesh, can I ask you if you're writing anything at the moment and if you have any plans to release anything? Yeah, so I I started teaching on a creative writing course a couple of years ago and because I'd always been critical of like creative writing courses that cost thousands of pounds because of like what that means for access but you know I'm also a writer who really 
believes in earning money to put a roof over my head I decided to make my creative writing notes free so like I'd prepare the class every week and then I would just send it out as like a Substack newsletter and it built up quite a big following quite quickly and my editor for Brown Baby was like do you want to do this as a book so I'm working on a creative writing book which is interesting because like the first draft of it was definitely like it was a badly written book about writing so I'm just trying to make that better at the moment I'm just about to start my next YA book which is exciting and I'm and I'm doing bits and bobs in the TV world as well can I ask how you um and I'm, I'm, I'm going to let you go then but how do you divide your time like how do you write what's your rhythm of it it really depends I a thing that I've discovered recently that I really love is this thing called the Writer's Hour, which is was set up by the London Writers Salon. And it's like a free Zoom where loads of writers, loads of really well-known writers join it as well at 8am BST, 8am EST and 8am PST. They just turn a Zoom on for an hour and everyone writes in silence for an hour. And no yeah, way. Yeah, I, I, I can send you the link after. I love the sound of it's that. It's really good. Like I usually do the, the 8am... Uh, Eastern Standard Time which is what 1pm 1 because it's sort of in the middle of the day and it breaks up my day between like the afternoon which is like meetings and kids and the morning which is like trying to get through stuff under contract and then I break that up with like something that's sort of a bit more fun. And kind of like anything goes just whatever you want to write. Yeah but I'm I'm a big believer in sort of setting myself realistic targets for the week I don't I don't like the whole write a thousand words a day because on the days like today where I'm knackered and I can't be bothered I'll write a thousand shit words and I'll have to deal with how shit they are in like three months time how about you now now that you're like becoming a badass full-time writer um (laughs) Are you are you working out? Full time scares to be Jesus <laughs> out of me because I because because with mother mother I just did like tiny bits here and there like you know the idea of going and like renting an Airbnb and <laughs> like or even like you know spending two weeks just in my own head like I've never done that and it kind of scares me the idea of it I, I'm worried that like if I wrote for like six hours a day every day that I would not write anything at all I don't know I I think I'd be like you I'd need to flip from thing to thing go out for a walk come back I don't know I think it's it's that but I'm I'm trying to write something new at the moment and I find that if I just write like random just kind of short form stuff just anything stuff I saw whatever just to practice the art of writing just to practice expressing stuff painting pictures with words and then kind of do that and then but in the morning like have an hour every day where I just try and do like the bigger thing but yeah, I'm learning. This is all ahead of me, Nikesh. I don't know. Like once once radio stops in July, there there should be a bit more time. So I'll figure it out. Figure out how it works. The the greatest love love the sound of that Zoom. Yeah, it's love the sound of that. It's really great. And I think the the greatest lesson I've learned is yeah. that writing isn't just sitting there with a word document. Mm. So much other stuff goes on, like. You know, when I'm working on a novel, I will curate a playlist of like stuff that fits the mood of the novel or stuff that the characters might listen to. I will read, I will read things like I'm thinking of something that is along the lines of like 
it's about a couple. So like I reread an amazing novel called Open Water recently. I've rewatched When Harry Met Sally. I started to rewatch 500 right. Days of Summer and then realised that is a film that's not dated very well. Um, <laughs> so it's like getting your head in the space, yeah. like in a, in, in a kind of 360 degree way. Yeah, yeah and, I like and that. Like, I've I, I I've got like voice memos where like if I'm walking along and I just see a bit of graffiti or if like a shop front yeah. or just like a way a person eats a banana on a bus or whatever like it'll go into a voice yeah. note or into the notes app like yeah it just it just feels like the more I allow myself to exist in the world that I'm trying to create when I'm not in front of the word document the sort of the more naturalistic it is when I sit down to actually write it and do it yeah yeah yeah. Nikesh, I thank you so much for your time. I'm aware that you're knackered and busy and got two kids. A lot on. (laughs) Um, So I really, I really appreciate your time and your wisdom. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me and best of luck with the novel. It really is amazing and I think it's going to go great. Thank you so much to Nikesh Shukla there for the sage advice as I contemplate my own writing practice. You can buy the book we spoke about now. It's called Brown Baby and it's just such a beautiful thing. Uh, Do go buy it. Remember to like, subscribe, pass it along, all of that and do get in touch to let me know what you thought of this episode. After last week with Sophie Haywood, Flora said, love this chat, love Sophie's book. Buffy SJ said, your guests are fascinating and I cannot stop listening. This is what we like to here. Next week, we're wrapping up the Mother Mother miniseries with a very inspiring story. It's Kieran Thapar, whose name you are hopefully about to see everywhere. He has written a completely game-changing study on the phenomenon of youth violence in the UK. It's called Cut Short. I wanted to talk to him because I knew that Kieran would have a lot to say about that incredibly volatile time in which a boy becomes a man. It's just another one of the big themes in Mother Mother as well. He told me all about the systemic societal issues that make that transition particularly difficult at this moment in time. And he also told me what we can all do to make a positive difference. It's such an inspiring conversation and I really can't wait for you to hear it. Changes is produced by Frank Palmer and we will be back next week. Until then, take care. Enjoy the sunshine. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.